the impetus for writing this book is that uh, very selfish. I was just utterly, completely miserable. I was confronted with the headlines of 2020, as we all were, which were just horrible, especially if you're a pundit whose job is to read, consume the news tirelessly, internalize it, and analyze it. So the day-to-day headlines were pandemic, lockdown, cities on fire, every institution in America reconceptualizing the founding as something horrid and evil. And it was just soul-crushing. Welcome to Act in Line, a podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In the rise of the new Puritans, Commentary Magazine associate editor Noah Rothman explains how, in pursuit of a better world, a relatively new and fervent strain of progressivism in a, quote, burst of moral enthusiasm, is ruining the very things which make life worth living by attempting to craft a society full of verbal tripwires and digital witch hunts. Football? Too violent. Fusion food? Appropriation. The nuclear family? Oppressive. As the social scientist Yuval Levin wrote in a review of the book, what's interesting about this new Puritanism is that, quote, it is not rooted in a Christian ethic, at least not explicitly, and therefore that its worldly severity is not moderated by humility before the divine. In response to this phenomenon, Rothman encourages us to spurn a movement whose primary goal has become limiting happiness. The book uncovers the historical roots of this war on fun and reminds us of the freedom and personal fulfillment at the heart of the American experiment. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Noah Rothman is the associate editor of Commentary Magazine. He appears daily on the Commentary Magazine daily podcast and is an MSNBC, NBC News contributor. Noah is the author of Unjust, Social Justice, and the Unmaking of America. His latest book is The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun, which we'll be discussing today. Noah Rothman, welcome to Act in Line. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. As a regular listener to the commentary podcast, I had to resist the temptation to say, hi, Noah, as uh, the introduction there. But uh, let's, uh, let's start here. I've, I've been routinely stealing Jonah Goldberg's first question for people who have books of what is your book about. Uh, and I want to get to that in general in a moment, but I, I want to start with, again, going back to the title of it, The Rise of the New Puritans. Um, I imagine a good amount of our audience may be familiar with this, but let's just do it for everybody's sake. Who were the original Puritans? The original Puritans, Big P Puritans, um, was a religious sect uh, that emerged in England, became a transatlantic phenomenon rather quickly. Um, They were an uncompromising breed of Protestants who uh, had an exacting view of the kind of behaviors that you were to engage in if you were to communicate piety and to achieve uh, piety and closeness with God. Um, And it was, as scholars have noted, uh, less, it was a religious view, a a theory of theology, 
but it transcended that, uh, transcended religious practice. It encompassed political practice as well, but it was more than that even. It was a theory of social organization. It was a way of life. Every facet of society had to comport with this rather exacting view. Um, it had a shorter shelf life in England than it had in the United States, where it lacked its natural predators uh, that hounded it in Europe. Uh, and the kind of exacting view of uh, politics and social life that we uh, commonly attribute to Puritanism, big P Puritanism in the United States, is actually, according to scholars of the phenomenon, more a byproduct of what it evolved into into the 19th century, uh, the kind of moral policing and comstockery that uh, developed, uh, incubated in mainline Protestant New England and subsequently took over the political culture in the 19th century. That sort of stereotypical, blue-nosed, prudish, puritanical, uh, generally elite figure who comes springs to mind when we think of stereotypes around Puritanism don't really comport with the 16th, 17th century iteration of this phenomenon. The Puritans themselves get a very bad rap they left us, they bequeathed us with this profoundly beneficial legacy of proto-democratic institutions, an uncompromising abolitionism, a sort of idea of a social safety net, proto-idea proto of a social safety net, so that you don't have to rely on charity in your darkest moments. These are the uh, what the Puritans bequeathed us. They are not remembered fondly for their efforts, however. They are remembered as laughingstocks. And very much the same phenomenon, I believe, will hound this present iteration of Puritanism, which this book uh, demonstrates has uh, a lot of uh, tethers that link it to not just 19th century progressivism as progressives, uh, what you would imagine progressives share a lot of similarities with their, uh, the, their uh, earlier progenitors of their philosophy, but also with, uh, with Puritanism. And this book provides some uh, uh, help to make you un help you understand and navigate what is otherwise just an unnavigable labyrinth of crazy, applying an, a moral framework to it to make it make more sense, but also to give you some idea of how of the seeds of destruction that this movement is sowing for itself and how it will unravel. So I often think the press progressives uh, seem unaware of their own intellectual history, and you can go back to the early 20th century and see just how important the social gospel movement was in early progressivism. So you can find these, um, perhaps if not the same exacting moralist standards of the Puritans, as you were describing, but at least that kind of a moralism through early progressivism until it kind of became, I suppose, convenient to forget about that part. You get into, I suppose, the 1960s, where you start having things like the sexual revolution and the, the nature of the left and progressivism in America changes and it kind of shreds that for an anti-moralism. Yeah. Um, progressivism in the 19th century was as much a political program and a political movement as it was uh, a movement of a moral movement um, of spiritual rejuvenation. I mean, we kind of forget because uh, popular culture has tried to foist this upon the shoulders of conservatives and conservatism. But um, uh, prohibition was the Protestant experiment. Uh, it was the temperance, was the uh, mainline Protestant uh, moral crusade of its time, and, and prohibition was its ultimate outgrowth. And the spectacular legal debacle um, was as much a moral crusade as anything else, perhaps more than a, uh, than a, a legal reform. And there are many uh, such similar uh, approaches to reforming 
the social contract in the 19th century, a progressive vision of reform um, that eventually found its home in the Republican Party, but it took some time to get there. And the Republican Party was an, was more a progressive party in the early part of the 20th century. But um, it, progressivism itself has found a home in both political coalitions, as has Puritanism. These are uh, traditions that uh, are have found uh, a comforting place on, in both political coalitions. We're all heirs to this tradition, aspiring social reformers much more, perhaps, than others. Uh, so this is a part of our shared political heritage and, and tradition that progressive, modern progressives won't recognize in themselves only because their grandparents and parents rejected it so profoundly. Uh, as you as you mentioned in the sexual revolution, this sort of intellectual tendency, and there were dissenters at the time, which have since found their audience, uh, who dissented against the licentiousness and hedonism of this view of liberalism that took shape in the late 1950s, early 1960s, and took over the culture in the 1980s, 1990s. Um, so they would not recognize that in themselves, only because they are they're borrowing a heritage that is not their own anymore, that they reject rather profoundly. And one of the one of the recommendations of this book is to confront the younger generations, very austere generation that is attempting to remoralize society uh, with the fact that they are uh, less accepting, less licentious, less chill than their parents and grandparents. They would reject that rather profoundly, I think. Um, but it is nevertheless the fact. There's plenty of evidence for it in this book. And it goes some way, I think, to uh, identifying the silliness, the silly excesses of this particular movement, and giving, most importantly, giving the audience for this book a permission structure to laugh at that which is objectively hilarious. Um, a lot of this, a lot of what we see on the from the activist wing of the puritanically inclined progressive is rather menacing because they they intend to make themselves menacing. Uh, but if you were to examine this with a historical lens and a little bit of perspective, it helps the audience understand what they're, what they're watching is actually a very American feature of the human experience and one that is short-lived, as all cults of misery tend to be. Let's back up here, uh, I think, to a, a version of that first question I, I said I usually ask, rather than what is your book about? What drew you to write this book and to make this connection between uh, Puritanism, the original Puritans, as I had you describe, and the modern movement that you're taking on in this book? The impetus for writing this book is that, uh, very selfish, I was just utterly, completely miserable uh, in late fall, early, late fall, December of uh, 2020, when I uh, began shopping this pitch around. Um, I was confronted with the headlines of 2020, as we all were, which were just horrible, especially if you're a pundit whose job is to read, consume the news tirelessly, internalize it, and analyze it. So the day-to-day -day headlines were pandemic, lockdown, cities on fire, every institution in America reconceptualizing the founding as something horrid and evil. And it was just soul crushing. So I'm sitting with my wife talking about, you know, what can, maybe what can I do to escape this, this miserable trap? And she's like, what do you want to do? Well, if I had my druthers, I would talk to people and businesses and industries I like and just sort of get away from the daily headlines. You know, sports broadcasters, showrunners, comics, chefs, everybody who's in entertainment fields that I like and enjoy. But I, 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 no, you can't. Because there's no escape from politics anymore. 
It's infected every institution, every field of the human experience, perhaps even especially those that aren't political, have committed themselves to politics. There's no getting away from this. And she said, that's the book. And it did become the book. But it took a while to develop the theory around uh, Puritanism. It began with just the subtitle, which is Progressive's War on Fun. Uh, And it took a bit to identify a sort of through line between, which is not, I'm not the first to do it, obviously, uh, but a through line between modern progressive thought and how progressives and Puritans, their forebearers uh, with their ideological proclivities, policed public morality. And then once you saw the similarities in the effort to police public morality and apply a totalitarian framework, by definition, because its, pro- its prescriptions are total, a totalitarian framework on every feature of society, uh, that that sort of answered the question for itself, that this was a puritanical, a puritanical um, mission. It's, it's not an, the fact that it's not a new observation made it a little more difficult, not commercially perhaps, but in an effort to be as intellectually comprehensive and generous as possible. Um, because again, as, because I'm not the first person to have this observation, I wanted to make sure that it was the most comprehensive argument that could be made citing primary documents from the period and what have you. So it, the research process um, became a little bit more involved after we established the, the the through line to Puritanism. But initially, you know, it was a, the series of anecdotes, anecdotes rather, about, uh, you know, progressives making your life miserable, um, which is fun to, to you know, read and enjoy and simmer in, but it doesn't really give you a taxonomy of what what this ideology is that you're confronting and how to, how to combat it. So that's, it was more prescriptive, I, I guess, than um, just observational. I remember having a rather similar experience of observing all of these things where you see how politics has seeped into all of them. And I'm a fan generally of Yuval Levin's theory that as Congress has abdicated its responsibilities to do politics, that's part of the reason why it has uh, seeped into every other part of the, the culture. But one of the things that always sticks out to me is you are not granted a freedom anymore to either not have an opinion or to not care about something. Everybody has to be a part of it. You know, they, it turns into everyone being that uh, guy from Blazing Saddles who points out, I didn't get a harumph from you. Uh, <laughs> everybody had to post the, the black square on Instagram, or even I just discovered this, that there is something, a, a friend of mine from back home is a fan of the band Hanson and made reference to something called Hanson Gate, which I had no idea what she was talking about and being uh, curious to a fault, decided to Google it. And basically it was the band's refusal to say the words Black Lives Matter. Um, and it is just that I didn't get a harump from you. So there's no space granted for people to just say, I don't particularly care about this or I'm not going to be involved. There is a, this expectation that everybody has to be involved in these same political causes to the same extent as the, the best advocates for it are. Yeah, there's two, two features of that. First is this demand for a, a very perfunctory box checking exercise. Um, but if you engage in that perfunctory box checking exercise, there's actually a perverse uh, effort underway to discourage that really uh, very uh, low barrier to entry Instagram activism. Um, because once you do that, once you post your your black box, 
uh, the other black box posters now identify you as a soft target. Um, part of this book identifies, and my last book, Unjust, uh, uh, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America, identifies a trait on the part of this very aggressive social justice advocate who believes in this totalitarian vision of how all of society's engines must be harnessed in the same direction. Um, that they're much more likely to go after uh, for apostasy or heresy uh, the people who are inclined to agree with them, um, in part because that's how you demonstrate efficacy. It does you no good to train your fire on a hard target for three days. Nothing happens, and you have to slink away to your next target. Um, so part of the reason why you have this effort underway to attack creatives and creators in creative industries is because mostly they're progressive. They genuinely believe in the core values of the progressive mission. Uh, insofar as I identify them, they are the three legs of the progressive stool are uh, environmental converse, uh, conservation, racial rapprochement, and reducing uh, the disparities uh, of wealth and income. Uh, and as long, and they are aligned with those in the abstract and those in theory. Um, but the practice of them as regards to how the forces of history have come together to culminate in the world historic importance of your burrito, that's the sort of thing where they get off the bus. And they can't get off the bus because to dissent from the program in any one way, shape, or form is to dissent from many other of its tenants yet untold uh, and to force its members to engage in introspection in ways that they're positively allergic to. Uh, so yes, there is no escape from it, uh, particularly if you're inclined towards progressive politics uh, as a disposition, not necessarily in, in you know, programmatically, but you're disposed towards this generous view of society uh, that progressives and technocrats generally tend to hold. Um, so yeah, that's certainly a feature of the movement. What do you make then of corporate America? Uh, would you put them in the category of being inclined towards these kind of politics and as such it makes them a target? Or is it just more of a wishy-washiness? And I, I, I see a lot of, from my view, I see a lot of corporate America kind of adrift and unsure which way the winds are blowing and it makes them a little bit more cowed by the demands for this. I used to do crisis communications uh, before I worked here at the Acton Institute. And when these companies would get involved in some kind of an online oriented, they, the mob starts coming after them. And the question is, well, what do we do immediately? Right. And my answer was always for 24 hours, nothing. Cause in most cases, 24 to 48 hours, they will have moved on. Like you described, they, they don't get the reaction that they want and then they move on to the next possible target. Um, so do you think it is uh, an inclination amongst the people who populate C-suites and boardrooms in corporate America to be inclined towards uh, these politics and this philosophy, or is it something else? It's both. I do. I, I agree with you. I think they're kind of buffeted by events, um, which is, you know, if if I was an investor and I had my my your fiduciary responsibility was to me, I would be very uh, discouraged by that sort of leadership. But there is indications that there's financial benefit to cowing to this particular movement. There's such a thing as moral merch, uh, which in the last several years, uh, prior to the pandemic even, but certainly in the increasing in the interim, uh, has been this idea that you should wear your politics on your sleeve. It used to be a euphemism for trite and shallow politics. It's now how you're expected to navigate society. You know, you might not know that Levi's jeans are the official jeans of the gun control movement. 
you want gun control pants, Levi's your brand. Um, Nike shoes, for example, which is the official shoe of uh, uh, anti-wokeness or rather anti-racism. All this sort of stuff generates returns on investment. These companies that engage in this sort of uh, very low barrier to entry activism do see returns on their investment in this uh, and it's a modest investment to make in just uh, presenting yourself as having political values. And polls suggest that the public does respond to the idea that they will, the, the, the companies that cater to their political values so that they can wear their politics on their sleeve. Um, there's a flip side to that coin that I think we're just only beginning to see emerge now, which is when the product itself becomes adulterated by this need to cater to one particularly uncompromising political vision for all of society. Um, when you have, for example, uh, entertainment companies like Disney that pledge to introduce plotting didactic narratives into their into their films that don't advance the plot, even risk breaking your suspension of disbelief, rendering the product itself worse in the promotion of these particular values, you have people who now reject it, and it's beginning to show in the bottom line. Likewise, the NFL, which saw its ratings decrease in 2020 and 2021 significantly, as it was promoting racial narratives, uh, going out there and having two national anthems, for example, to which fans routinely and vocally objected, and they were admonished by their betters in the field of sports broadcasting for clinging to their need to for an, for an escapism rather than their moral duty to dwell on the horrors of existence at all times and in all things. Um, and you're also starting to see some major companies that would otherwise cow to the backlashes against people who transgress the narrative by the puritanically puritanically inclined progressive like Netflix, like Spotify, which, um, you know, are, are consumed by the sort of outrage, uh, 72 hour outrage machine that we've become very familiar with and just buck the pressure. And then the pressure goes away after 72, you know, 96 hours. Uh, so you're beginning to see the backlash materialize in a very sustainable way, I think. Um, but it's just, it's nascent. It's very incipient. I thought your point about the way that entertainment is being changed is a particularly interesting one because someone involved in, in my line of work, communications and marketing, I don't know if you remember this. This is probably 12 years ago now. Uh, there was this film made called An American Carol, which took the concept of A Christmas Carol and put, uh, it was actually Chris Farley's brother who started it as basically Michael Moore, uh, who is visited by these ghosts of you know, America's past, present and future. And he comes out to be this you know, patriot instead of the what Michael Moore was at that time as a result of it. And it's such, in terms of art, it's just bad. It, it is hitting you over the head with a sledgehammer with the message. You know, and compare that to, and I'll even use something more neutral here as an example and not something decidedly with a progressive message to it. I always think of the difference, if you know the story of the making of Groundhog Day, that the original script treatment for Groundhog Day was much more philosophical. Um, it was much more serious than the comedy that is produced. And Harold Ramis's direction was, it has to be funny first. It has to be funny first. And you will only need to go about an inch below the surface to start getting into some of the interesting moral and philosophical questions that are raised by that film. But 
its first purpose was to be entertaining. I think you can think of a whole lot of movies that have been made, again, by Hollywood and people primarily on the left that communicate left-wing ideas, but do so in a way that entertains you and brings you along rather than becoming so didactic and beating you over the head with a message. Yeah, Uh, there is, uh, that reminds me of, um, the American Carol uh, reminded me of this very spectacularly failed venture. I think it was on Fox News to create a right-wing answer to The Daily Show in the mid-aughts. The half-hour uh, news hour. Half-hour news hour. And that was just atrocious. And why was it atrocious? Because it wanted to communicate a political message first, like you say. It was to be – it had a moral to it, and you had to be bludgeoned with it because they didn't trust you to accept the subtlety of uh, a, a, a theme that isn't necessarily an overarching element of the plot line, but, it's, but political themes that you as a human being who's capable of understanding subtlety and nuance can discern on your own um, that kind of condescension. Uh, fear of audiences has migrated from the right to the left. Uh, the left now berates you with... Uh, really, as as you said, didactic themes, really plotting narratives that are designed to communicate a political value first. The entertainment is secondary. You need to have your hand held and to get to the to the point that they're trying to make because they don't trust you to get it on your own. Um, that's very puritanical. Uh, the Puritans, the big P Puritans themselves, despised art for its own sake. Beauty for its own sake was a form of idleness. And that which is idle is the gravest of, uh, of sins because if it's not actively contributing to the promotion of a, of a better society, it's detracting from it as a vessel for evil that will be filled by the devil. Idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? Yeah. Correct. So the forms of art that got a pass, portraiture, furniture design, headstone making, got, got the license that it got because these were records for posterity. They were designed to communicate to future vener- generations what happened here, who these people were, it served a purpose higher than pure art for art's sake. I mean, see that we see now in the, in the left, which is uh, still occupies the commanding heart heights of American culture, uh, promoting products that have a mission first um, and comedians that emphasize the pain that you had to endure so that you could enjoy something as trite as a punchline. These sort of things detract from the entertainment value, but they have a higher purpose. They fulfill a social purpose, and that's what's really important, not your need for diversion, not your entertainment, surely. That's that's small and kind of shameful when compared to the great work of our time, the promoting of the progressive project. Dilate a little bit on the on comedy, because comedy is one of the more interesting areas to me right now, because you see these... Uh, people like Chappelle, um, and I, I go back to one of the funnier things that, again, to pick up a cultural icon here, Saturday Night Live did in the last couple of years was that sketch of uh, Republican or not, where based on the statements, the contestants have to guess if the person's a Republican and the person says, you know, Dave Chappelle is my favorite comedian, uh, starting when? Uh, and you have these break points where, you know, Chappelle did incredibly uh 
amazing, entertaining, and transgressive stuff in Chappelle's show, and now becomes this figure that is just, to me, oddly associated with the political right. And you have that in juxtaposition to who I, I know you were referencing earlier on there, the Australian comedian Hannah Gatsby, who's, you know, big special, the whole point of which is it's anti-comedy, but not anti-comedy in the way that Steve Martin used to do anti-comedy. It is painful for the purpose of being painful. Yeah, anti-comedy isn't new. The shtick that is designed to shock, offend, or just confuse isn't new. Um, Hannah's act is a little new insofar as she's funny when she wants to be funny. She doesn't always want to be funny. Sometimes she very explicitly isn't funny. She'll uh, set up a, a punchline and then not allow you the release of the punchline. She'll set up the joke and just let you simmer in the tension. She will circle back to something she said five minutes ago and ask you why you thought that was funny. Was my pain really that funny? And why do you think that's funny? And her fans do her a disservice because that's what they love. They really love the attack, the interrogation, to use their words, uh, of this form of, of humor insofar as you can call it humor. Um, because they don't like the joke. They like the pain. They like the lesson that you're supposed to learn from the pain. Couple that with, as I said, this kind of condescension and fear of audiences. And I talk about this in, in the book. Um, there, one particular essay that I use to exemplify this point is written by a guy named Seth Simons in 2021 in The New Republic, where he identifies the genesis of the alt-right, a sort of racially hostile, anti-democratic vision of, uh, of American society that's now finds its home on the right. Um, in a form of comedy that was popular in the early 2000s called Cringe, which I kind of orbited around at the time. Um, and that version of comedy leveraged unspeakable things for humor, for humor values, sexism, racism, homophobia, violence, bigotry, uh, the sort of stuff that you would say, well, if you, you know, like that sort of thing, you're probably a bad person, much less if you were to tell that joke. But this is a clinical description of dark humor. To say you're going, you know, to, to try to... Uh, anathematized dark humor is to go to war with human nature. This is a salve that allows you to uh, endure life's harshest moments, literally to laugh your way up the gallows steps. This is th the essence of dark humor. So Simons draws a straight line from the early 2000s to the sacking of the Capitol on January 6th. This black swan event somehow has been rendered inevitable by this very mundane form of human experience. Uh, so that's itself a logical leap. But the condescension, condescension is in the fact that neither Simons nor anybody else who criticizes this form of humor believe that the stand-ups on stage talking about this sort of thing are going to act out their antisocial behaviors once they get off stage. They're going to go down into the subway platform and push somebody in front of a train. They don't actually think that's going to happen. You might. They don't know about you you might be the problem here. You, sap that you are, are so impressionable that even exper experiencing, coming into contact with subversive forms of art could trigger in you the latent violent impulses we know you harbor, you bigot. Um, that's the sort of element that is animating this puritanical tendency on the left. And if you couple that with a just sort of suspicion of carefree joy and frivolity, uh, it, it mirrors puritanism in ways that are too hard to ignore. In your opinion, is this an outgrowth of the 
what I see in the evolution of, of comedy and the influence of modern politics in there is you, you used to have people like George Carlin who were doing social commentary and were doing it in a way that even when I didn't agree with him, I still laughed at it. And you compare that to what you're getting on, say, the late night shows now and somebody like Stephen Colbert, who is capable of being funny, but is not really saying things that are actually jokes. He's just saying things that a left-wing audience wants to hear in order to draw applause. Yeah, I, I mean, that's where the the reward structure is in front of that audience, for sure. Um, yeah, so that the tendency that manifested in Lenny Bruce's persecution, in George Carlin's persecution, in Richard Pryor's eponymous NBC show, which aired for only four episodes, was bottlerized and chopped up and abused to the point where nobody actually wanted to be involved with it, including Pryor and, and certainly NBC, um, was a feature of the right. It was the right that saw in these rather innocent uh, aspects of innocent uh, cultural offerings of cultural fare, uh, the capacity to uh, corrupt you and degrade society around you. And why? Because they were flippant about the great challenges of our time. Um, Bruce in particular, but certainly Carlin and even Pryor, who uh, approached racial issues with a kind of unseriousness that was just unbecoming of a very staid, straight-laced, institutionalist view of the issue in the uh, 1960s, 1970s. So it is sort of this outlook that, and Yuval picked up on this more so than I did in his review of my book, um, that the role reversal that be, has left us with this very disorienting situation is in part a view, an, a, a view that the parties take of themselves and those inclined to uh, gravitate towards these parties, whether they support them outright with their votes or not just generally these, these two camps and the dispositions that would lead you to go into these two camps has switched over the course of the last 20 years or so, whereas Republicans, regardless of whether they, they were in or out of power, genuinely regarded themselves as the guarantors of propriety. Uh, they were the guardians and stewards of institutions and our institutional heritage, and they were the gatekeepers to those institutions. Um, again, regardless of electoral politics, and by contrast, progressives and Democrats regarded themselves as the insurgents banging on the windows and the doors, trying to get in and, and overturn the tables and break things. Uh, they, were, um, they regarded themselves as outsiders. And that has very much flipped on its head, regardless of where, where the polls end up for Democrats and progressives. They regard themselves now as the guarantors of institutions, the keepers of those institutions and of general civic propriety. Uh, and Republicans, as you can see on a day-to-day -day basis, regard themselves now as outsiders that are trying to shake things up because they don't perceive themselves to be on the inside anymore. They think they're on the outside. Uh, and that's why one of the reasons why we've seen this role reversal of cultural conflict in which uh, Republicans are attempting to shape and reshape rather staid and uh, established conventions and Democrats are doing their best to keep them together. It's a profound role reversal. Well, underlying that phenomenon over the same 20 to 30 year course of time, you have the 
the political happening that the parties have essentially been switching their bases in terms of the demographic makeup of, of who is the base of each of those parties. So you have the Republican Party going from being primarily made up of suburban college educated people who are, if not part of the elite, at least adjacent to the elite or aspiring to the elite and mostly working class people in the Democratic Party. And you're switching these over time. So this is where I think you get this phenomenon now of, I remember reading about this a couple of years ago, of barstool conservatives, um, which, you know, takes some, some parts of, I think, instinctual conservatism and some parts of instinctual libertarianism and marries it with kind of a libertinism, a sexual licentiousness, um, a kind of, you know, barstool, I think, being often characterized by the way that its, uh, its founder would send online mobs after female reporters uh, online for, you know, daring to question the idea that Saturday is for the boys. Um, it, it kind of becomes very bro-y in that sense, too. So I, I, I've been equally fascinated by this change in role reversal that has been going on. Yeah, and it certainly predates the ascension of Donald Trump to lead the Republican Party and to really dominate the conservative movement insofar as there is a conservative movement. Um, but he definitely helped accelerate that trend, I think. Um, sort of the conventional culture wars that Republicans were inclined to wage, uh, divorce, gay marriage, even to a lesser degree, abortion as abortion rates had declined dramatically. Uh, and, and now that everybody's navigating this new legal environment ushered in by Dobbs, there's this burst of moral enthusiasm on both sides. But the issue had settled into the background for quite a while. Um, because Donald Trump was so such a figure that was not beholden to these very traditional sort of moral majoritarian cultural crusades, uh, it sort of helped finish off what was already a, uh, a tendency in decline. Um, but, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, and Republicans, one, lost or fled the field when it comes to the culture wars in favor now of sort of what I guess you could kind of describe as very online culture wars. Um, they are sort of becoming much more relevant to our day-to-day. But um, the degree to which transgenderism dominates our conversation, disproportionate to the actual number of transgender people, is something that future generations will marvel at. I mean, this is this is the predominant subject of cultural discourse, and it is by all accounts a conversation around a very small group of people that most Americans have no personal contact with, um, which is very very different from gay marriage, as the gay marriage debate unfolded in the 1990s and early 2000s. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the and the abstract nature of that, of that conversation, of that debate, renders it kind of low stakes. I don't know if anybody who actually engages in this sort of cultural combat would acknowledge that or would even entertain that idea, but the stakes associated with their various programs are much more aimed at their opponents at the political opposition and and the reaction that the opposition will engender than it is to advancing rights and privileges for actual individuals and actual human beings. Those human beings end up becoming secondary to the cultural combat. The cultural combat is what enlivens people. It's what gets them out of bed in the morning. It's certainly what makes political careers. It's not as though you know, uh, Gavin Newsom is being carried on the shoulders of, you know, a parade of transgender people. That's just not happening. It's, it's that he's winning um, points in the culture wars. Likewise, similar, uh, the other side of it is is Ron DeSantis, both of whom have become uh, cultural touchstones and cultural lightning rods for these particular 
reasons, but broadly, going back to the initial point, um, is that as Republicans sort of abandoned their very conventional uh, vision of social propriety, Democrats came in um, and progressives who had a incubated perhaps in, in college campuses where this culture of safetyism is, is John Hyde and Greg Lukianoff identifying coddling of the American mind migrated off campus and into institutions. And they took this worldview with them, this very, this idea of safety and the idea that trauma, actual physical trauma can accompany ideas and, and thoughts and digressions that, um, that might be challenging or provocative. Um, the necessary corollary to that idea is that you must make the world safe for people who are perhaps subject to trauma as a result of these ideas. Therefore, the ideas must be de-emphasized. Uh, and that becomes a moral campaign, a moral crusade, because you have an absolute right and obligation to ensure the, the safety of your, of your neighbors. And thus, we have the remoralization of society from the left, the sort of thing Gertrude Himmelfarb uh, identified, but could never, couldn't even possibly imagine the ways in which it would manifest. Um, and so that's what we, we have today. On your point about the transgenderism issue, isn't this where social media and the rapidity of information come in? Because while you're right, it, it unfolds differently than gay marriage because people realize that there were people in their orbits that they knew who were affected by this issue. Um, you're right. Fewer people know somebody who is transgender, but through the phenomenon we have of social media, something that happens 3000 miles away feels like it is in your backyard, even if you don't actually know the people. And, and you know, if we go full you know, down the road of, of you know, Yuval Levin's points about crumbling institutions that bring us together in, in real senses of intimacy with others, because we have uh, put so much of that online, it feels just as real to us if it's 3,000 miles away and it's somebody that we don't know. But now we know that that person exists. I, it's, to me, it's the same phenomenon as of what initiated the, the French-Iranian wars um, a couple of years ago between David French and Saurabh Amari, where Saurabh is so fit to be tied about this event that is happening in Sacramento when he lives in New York and it's thousands of miles away. That's the impetus for it. Whereas in a pre-social media age, if you said to somebody in Peoria, hey, in Sacramento, uh, at a library once a week, a drag queen reads a storybook to kids, the person's reaction would probably be, that's weird. And then they would move on with their day. But because of the greater forum for interaction and seeing what's going on in places that aren't your backyard, but feel like it, it feels like the issue is so much closer and bigger than maybe it actually is. Yeah, and who knows? It might have been a self-fulfilling prophecy on the part of Sorab to devote so much attention to this because our all-consuming need to provoke and frustrate the other side ensured that this this transgender, you know, fad in, in libraries and what have you had more reach and more. It's its own Streisand effect, yeah. Right, precisely, a Streisand effect, yeah. So it had more more appeal than it probably would have organically. Uh, but that's not a, a defense of anybody. That's actually more an indictment, just the shallowness of deriving some measure of satisfaction from annoying the right people uh, is, a, is a rather uh, unlovely trait. Um, but yeah, most certainly the way that tribes organize themselves a thousand miles away from you on fens on an instinctual level. And because we have the town square now that resides in your in your pocket and is with you all times every day as you are confronted with 
the the disparate disorienting ways in which other societies organize themselves it's the miracle of federalism that allows us all to get together and live with each other but that's actually politics properly understood and nobody wants to understand politics anymore properly understood we talk about things that are political we impose political themes on things that have no business being political because they are resistant to legislative remedy they have nothing whatsoever to do with electoral outcomes or legislative affairs they are um just sort of vaguely political in a way that you would have to that that used to be a thought experiment uh relegated to freshman seminars it is now how we navigate all of existence we talk about every feature of american society in terms that you used to reserve for uh the faculty lounge and academic discussions because they are very much in the literal sense academic um but now they have uh, assumed a outsized importance as we conclude here I want to ask you, I think it's the obvious concluding question. So what do we do about this? Um, I wonder if you give it attention this way. So one of the missions of the Acton Institute is to promote a free and virtuous society. So clearly the idea that promoting virtue within our culture, within our civil society is an important thing. And I think if you asked a lot of these activists, um, they would think that they are promoting a sense of what is good. Um, it pr- manifests itself in the more totalitarian ways that I think you've described. Um, but how, what do we do about this? And how do we go about it in a way that would be copacetic with promoting a view of a virtuous society that doesn't turn into its own version of this kind of puritanical impulse, but also doesn't become, I think what we were just talking about there, which is people who are you know, being a jerk in response to things that annoy them for the purpose of being a jerk, you know, being provocative can have a point. Um, but we see so much, I think, in our culture wars where people are being provocative for the purpose of trolling people or for drinking liberal tears and these other things that I don't think are a good and constructive impulse and doesn't lead towards the kind of society that I think we would agree that we want, which is ones where people who do have differences of opinion can coexist and get along with each other and try to use politics for what it is supposed to be, which is a way to come to accommodations on big problems where we do have differences. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think you would answer the question probably better than I would. Um, but there's a reason why in the book, uh, I, uh, the chapters, for example, are organized by unimpeachable values, uh, piety, prudence, order, austerity, temperance, and the fear of God. Um, a lot of the things that, and when you apply a moral framework to what we're seeing manifest on the progressive left these days, a lot of it becomes understandable and defensible. Uh, for example, in the, in the chapter on temperance, young progressive activists have rediscovered something that conservatives have known since time immemorial, which is that <clears throat> when you have young men and women in social situations that are bathed in alcohol, socially destabilizing things can happen. Uh, and the fabric of social order can come apart and that's not necessarily a great thing. We should probably preserve the social order. Uh, conservatives would recognize that as an unimpeachable value, albeit one that rejects the philosophy advanced by uh, sexual revolutionaries in the 1960s, 1970s, and and their the Democrats who uh, took over the pol- political environment in the 1990s and adhere to those particular values. Um, so the moral framework is good. It manifests itself in this very paranoid totalitarian fashion on the left. Um, the ways to break that down, I think the the negative aspects of what is in many ways a defensible moral code, 
uh, is, again, to have the permission to laugh at it, and first and foremost, uh, in part because this this very small group of individuals, I'm not talking about progressives, I'm not talking about Democrats, I'm not talking about liberals, it's a very particular sort of progressive that punches far above their weight and captures many institutions just based on the menace that they present. Um, first of all, to give you permission to laugh at them, because the laughing at them is disarming. And the second is, as we talked about earlier, commercial pressures, which I think will have their own effect of breaking this thing apart, as they did in the 19th century. I wrote about in the book, the story of Band in Boston, which is um, a, a phrase that described the sort of moral social order and policing of public morality in mainline Protestant New England. Uh, that was very effective, um, much more effective than it was in the rest of the country. The societies for the suppression of vice arose all over the country, but they were most effective in New England at bottlerizing plays, banning dime store novels, making sure that the cultural fair that the rest of the country had access to, you didn't as a New Englander. Um, but this evolved from a, uh, a admonishment uh, to avoid titillating literary experiences to a profoundly uh, uh, compelling advertisement for them. Publishers eventually tried to have their books banned in Boston. Um, and we see this in the way in which conservative books, which find themselves banned on Amazon, banned on Facebook, is the modern, uh, modern analogy, modern equivalent, uh, achieve wild commercial success, disproportionate to the PR campaigns around those books. Um, just about anything that contravenes modern progressive uh, moral sensibilities and certainly generates some controversy around it finds itself having far more commercial appeal than it would have had the aspiring censors in our midst just ignored it. Um, that's the sort of thing that has the capacity to break down these strictures because you're communicating to firms which have one objective, which is the advancement of their bottom line and the fiduciary responsibilities to their investors, um, what regardless of their morals are, will have little to no choice but to provide the kind of uh, entertaining fare, regardless of its moral value, uh, that people actually want to consume. And as we talked about earlier, increasingly, that, that fare has uh, conventional conservative values associated with it, or at least conventional American values, these ideas of uh, expression for its own sake, uh, the free and unfettered exploration of ideas, tolerance properly understood as toleration, and not just a you know a grudging acceptance. Um, these are the sort of things that increasingly accompany the dissent against this modern progressive orthodoxy. And if you have hope for the future, as I do, that's a very hopeful sign. Noah Rothman is the associate editor of Commentary Magazine and the author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun, which we've been discussing today. Noah, thank you so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thank you so much for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.